This is Tanakh. Welcome back to Tanakh Cast. As always, a pleasure to have you back. So, at the conclusion of chapter 7, Noah has built the ark of gopher wood, reeds, and pitch. He stocks it with pairs of all living things, food, and his family. Chapter 7 concludes with the rising seas covering all of creation, submerging even the highest mountains under the devastating waters. But as chapter 8 opens, quote, God paid mind to Noah and all living things, all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God brought a rushing wind across the earth so that the waters abated. This took 150 days. Recalling the chiasmus literary device from the previous episode, this period was the second set of 150 days, followed by another 40-day stretch, then two runs of seven days until Noah would leave the ark. Finally, after the ark settled on the peak of Mount Ararat, Noah would wait 40 days until opening the window to send out a raven who flew off and returned. Noah did the same later with a dove who also flew off and returned. And after waiting seven days, he sent out the dove again, who returned this time with an olive branch in her beak. So the text states, quote, Noah knew that the waters had subsided from upon the earth. Seven days later, he sent out the dove again, and the dove did not return. It was now safe to disembark. Chapter 8 concludes with God blessing Noah and commanding him and his family and all the animals to resettle the planet and, quote, bear fruit and become many upon the earth. Noah, or I keep switching back between Noah and Noah, but you understand it's the same person. Noah offers a sacrifice from all the pure animals and fowl, and God savors the smell, pledging not to destroy the world because of human folly. The rainbow serves as a sign of God's promise, quote, to call to mind the age-old covenant between God and all living beings, all flesh that is upon the earth. Chapter 9 also recounts Noach's foray into viticulture and public drunkenness. Ham, seeing his father's nakedness, regaled his brothers about the sight, but Shem and Yefet respectfully covered their father. After recovering from a killer hangover, Noach heard of Ham's or Ham's behavior and cursed him. Damned be Knaan, servant of servants, may he be to his brothers, Noach says. Chapter 10 is a straight-up genealogy list, but it also provides us with some important cameos, such as Gog and Magog, the sides prophecy to engage in apocalyptic war in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Ashkenaz, the forefather of Central Europeans and Gefiltefish, Yavan, the progenitor of Hellas and Hellenic culture, Kush, the forebear of Ethiopia, Mitzrayim, the ancestor of Egypt, Nimrod, the mighty hunter before Adonai and first king of Babylon, Nineveh, the mighty city featured in the book of Jonah, Knaan, the antecedent of the Yevisites, Amorites, Girgashites, and Hivites. The first nine verses of chapter 11 recount the story beloved by linguists, the Tower of Babel, a little tale about semantic confusion, which serves as a brief and charming respite from the subsequent genealogy list that chews up the rest of the chapter, concluding with the beginning of the next set of central figures in this very humanly scaled drama, Avram, son of Terach, Lot, son of Haran, and Sarai, who set out from Ur of the Chaldees to the land of Canaan with an open-ended layover in Haran. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's selection. Let's get to it.
This week's episode has a little bit of everything. The micro, the macro, natural disaster and human folly, eating, drinking, and of course, begetting. The story of Noah inspired many children's toys and the legendarily campy 1976 sci-fi series Arc 2. But its epilogue is lesser known and rather disturbing. God blesses Noah and sons, informing them that all the animals will be scared of humans, for good reason, as we'll see, and that humans can eat them, if they can catch them, but not the blood. French epicure Brillat Savarines once said, tell me what you eat, and I'll tell you what you are. Food doesn't just nourish us. It encodes our social relations. Companion literally means with bread. And men do not eat with their enemies. The way humans eat, what they eat, when they eat, how they eat, reflects the values and practices of their group. The most commonly used put-downs usually refer to what the other eats. So the British call French frogs, and the French derisively refer to British folks as roast beef, Germans are krauts, and Turks incidentally call the white folks in Germany potatoes. One could also argue that the term shiksa, a slur for a non-Jewish woman, has some connection to ritual impurity, of which creeping insects were definitely an exemplar, but also to the biblical association of non-Jews and their abominable eating habits of insects. Incidentally, only one kind of insect is kosher, but more about that when we get to Leviticus sometime in the next, I don't know, two years. Be patient. In short, food is what we eat what they eat is crap, and so are they. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs. Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person. Ah, blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. You and all your silly English niggits. Oh, all right. Just, just, just one more. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough whopper. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberries. In other words, what is considered food varies from group to group, and if you have a notion of what food is, which every group of humans do, then you also have a notion of what food is not. That's the connection here. In case you missed it, what food is not? Blood is not food. Every dietary system has its taboos, and here in Genesis we read about the first one, and it's framed in the context of God telling Noah and his sons what they can eat. And it's pretty much everything, all the crawls in the soil and all the fish of the sea, however flesh, that is land, animal, flesh, mammalian flesh, if it's to be eaten, and the use of the word ach, however, is a concession to meat eating, if it is to be eaten, it has to be done without the blood, for the blood is the life. Not eating the blood of the animal is one of the Noahide laws. Now I'm sure you're thinking, Noah what laws? Well, House Joint Resolution 104 was introduced to the House of Representatives on January 31st, 1991 by Representative and Republican House Minority Leader Robert H. Michael, entitled, harmlessly enough, to designate March 26, 1991 as Education Day USA. And now, to introduce a new feature to TanakhCast, anytime I have a text that's just too long or too boring or tedious to read, I'm going to get Lee to do it. Lee is the text-to-speech voice in my handy MacBook, and Lee doesn't mind. So, everybody, welcome Lee, reading House Joint Resolution 104.
Take it away, Lee. Whereas Congress recognizes the historical tradition of ethical values and principles which are the basis of civilized society and upon which our great nation was founded, whereas these ethical values and principles have been the bedrock of society from the dawn of civilization, when they were known as the seven Noahide laws, whereas without these ethical values and principles the edifice of civilization stands in serious peril of returning to chaos. Whereas the justified preoccupation with these crises must not let the citizens of this nation lose sight of their responsibility to transmit these historical ethical values from our distinguished past to the generations of the future. Whereas the Lubavitch movement has fostered and promoted these ethical values and principles throughout the world. Whereas Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, leader of the Lubavitch movement, is universally respected and revered and is 80. Ninth birthday falls on the 26th of March, 1991, whereas in tribute to this great spiritual leader, the Rebbe, this, his 90th year will be seen as one of education and giving, the year in which we turn to education and charity to return the world to the moral and ethical values contained in the seven Noahide laws, and whereas this will be reflected in an international scroll of honor signed by the President of the United States and other heads of state. Thanks, Lee. So, this joint resolution had 225 co-sponsors, and once it was approved in the House on March 5, 1991, it whipped through the Senate and was signed into law by President George Herbert Walker Bush on March 20, 1991, and it became known as Public Law Number 102-14. stroke Now, the Torah is full of laws, 613 to be precise. However, these laws, these commandments only apply to those who accept the Torah, that is, the Jews. But Noahide laws transcend the covenant. The Noahide laws, uh, and I was always taught there were seven, and so I guess I keep wanting to say seven, but at this point we're not really sure how many there are, so we'll just call them the Noahide laws. They're bonding in all of humanity. And they serve as the basis for moral imperatives for a civilized society. Even the U.S. Congress thinks so. So one would assume that these Noahide laws, I keep trying to say, keep wanting to say seven, although they're, you know, they're not as extensive as Jewish law, but they would probably cover a lot of moral ground. So, you know, get your pencils and we're going to actually track them. You'll, you'll need a pencil. Um, public law number 102, stroke 14 says seven. So, the blood ban is the first. The second comes in in the subsequent verses in Genesis chapter 9. That's verse 5 and 6, for those of you following at home, prohibiting murder. And that's it. Yep, that's it. All you need to underpin a moral and just society is not eating blood and not shedding it. But didn't Representative Michael say seven? Didn't I? Hadn't I learned all those years? Seven, seven, seven. So quickly scanning ahead in Genesis doesn't reveal very much in, or any other commandments that Noah says or gets told or passes on. So where are the other five? Well, if we jump ahead, maybe we'll find some. But we won't. The only place we're going to find some or any kind of reference to Noah or Noahide laws is in the apocryphal book of Jubilees. It's one of those bible books that didn't make the final cut where we also find the account of Noah and the flood. And in chapter 7, verses 20 through 28, it states, And in the 28th Jubilee, where uh, a Jubilee or Yovel is the year at the end of the seven cycles of a Shemitah or sabbatical years, and, and, and there's some debate as to whether the Yovel refers to the 49th or the 50th year, 
So the 28th Jubilee would equal 20 times 49, that's 2 carry the 7, something like 1372 in the Jewish calendar, which equals... Twenty-three ninety BCE, and now I'm going to call upon Lee again to read this rather long quote from the Book of Jubilee. Noah began to enjoin upon his sons' sons the ordinances and commandments, and all the judgments that he knew. And he exhorted his sons to observe righteousness, and to cover the shame of their flesh, and to bless their Creator, and honor father and mother, and love their neighbor, and guard their souls from fornication and uncleanness and all iniquity. For owing to these three things came the flood upon the earth. For whoso sheds man's blood, and whoso eats the blood of any flesh, shall all be destroyed from the earth. So if we tally this up, the Book of Jubilees lists six Noahide laws, unless of course you count guarding against fornication, uncleanliness, and all iniquity as three separate laws. Then you have uh, with the ban of murder tacked on at the end that makes that nine Noahide laws. You know, let's keep looking. Hello there, Peabody here. Once again, it is time to take another revealing peek back into history. What famous date shall I set it to today, Mr. Peabody? To the Acts of the Apostles from the New Testament, specifically chapter 15, where Paul, after consulting the council in Jerusalem, writes a letter to the Gentiles in Antioch, which states, Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Thanks, Lee. That list, I, I think, comes to four. The common elements so far seem to focus on eating blood and sexual immorality. They're not going to release the album because they have decided that the cover is sexist. Well, so what? What's wrong with being sexy? I mean, there's no... Sexist. So how did we get to seven? Well, as with many answers to Jewish questions... We get it from the Talmud. And here they are. Do not worship idols. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not fornicate. Do not blaspheme. Do not eat flesh from a live animal. And establish courts of law. Got that? And once the Noahide legislating concludes, God sets the rainbow as a sign that he will not destroy the earth again with a flood. Although considering Noah's behavior post-flood, I might have reconsidered giving Noah the Miss Walks with the Lord award. The first thing Noah does after having saved all the land animals is to lay his hands on a bunch of them and kill them and barbecue them. You dick! And then, being the first man of the soil, Noah gets to planting. But he doesn't plant wheat or tomatoes or cucumbers or maybe a nice citrus fruit. He plants a vineyard, harvests the grapes, makes wine, and then drinks it. A lot of it. Do you think he drinks? He didn't get that nose from playing ping pong. 
What a catastrophe. So Noah was falling down drunk in his tent and apparently naked or semi-naked. What a catastrophe. And Ham, the middle son, saw his father in this state and, as the text relates, told his two brothers outside. I emphasize here Ham's middle childedness, not to explain away his behavior as yet another example of middle child syndrome. The text refers to the three sons of Noah as Shem, Ham, and Yefet consistently. The significance of this will be clear in a moment. Just bear with me. So upon hearing of their father's drunken nakedness from Ham, Shem and Yefet enter their father's tent backwards with a cloak over their shoulders and cover their father. And when Noah sleeps it off, he awakes and, quote, it became known what his littlest son had done to him, and he is angry. Littlest son? Didn't the Torah say that Ham is the middle child? Unless, of course, Noah is referring to another littlest son, the littlest son of Ham, named Knaan or Canaan. This might explain why instead of cursing Ham, Noah rails against Canaan, condemning him to be the servant to his brothers. He continues blessing the god of Shem and repeating his curse of Canaan. Then he continues blessing Yefet and cursing Canaan again. Canaan is not another name for Ham or Ham. Ham is referred to repeatedly as the father of Canaan, twice in chapter 9 as part of this story and again at the outset of chapter 10. But what did Ham do that would be so terrible, so awful, that his father would curse him or skip him altogether and curse his child, Canaan? Perhaps it was how, Ham told his brothers, mocking and shaming his father in the process. Even if we consider the possibility that seeking another's nakedness is a euphemism for other not-safe-for-work behaviors, the question remains, why did Noah curse the littlest son, Canaan? perhaps to justify what was to come in the book of Joshua, or wished for by the Torah's authors, the ultimate subjugation and enslavement of the Canaanites at the hands of post-Exodus and desert-wandering Jews. Noah's eternal curse is grounds for dispossessing a depraved people whose depravity began with its immoral ancestor. Or perhaps, as this curse came from Noah, and God had blessed Ham at the beginning of the chapter, the cursing would make Ham like rubber and Noah glue. Whatever Noah would say would be bounced back to him, I guess. In other words, once you are blessed, you cannot be unblessed. So, Noah cursed Ham's son instead. The last topic I want to discuss is the nine-verse story of the Tower of Babel. Though never referred to in the text as the Tower of Babel, but merely as the tower. Its construction is, according to some, a cautionary tale, but it's also an etiology or origin narrative explaining why one race of humans developed so many different languages. Though the brevity in the telling is compelling, it's, for me, Gustave Doré's print of this tale that sticks. As a child, I had a Tanakh at home interspersed with the Frenchman's illustrations. I would often spend hours flipping through the pages of this text in search of those illustrations, and to this day, certain stories in the Tanakh are inimitably etched in my mind as Doré imagined them, such as Cain standing over a sprawled Hevel, the club still in his hand as he leans on a rock for support, seemingly dazed by the deed while storm clouds gather in the distance. Or a naked human family and the ancestor of the tiger from Life of Pi seeking refuge from the deluge on a promontory to little avail. Or, 
A young David holding aloft the severed head of Goliath, the giant scimitar laying at the boy's feet as blood drains and the Philistine armies flee in terror. Or Avshalom in silhouette, hanging from a low tree branch by his hair as Yoav and his men approach on horseback spears at the ready. And the Tower of Babel. In one illustration entitled The Confusion of the Tongues, Doré manages to capture the subtleties that emerge from the economically spun tale. The initial excitement of the project, the intense effort and labor, the glory it promised, replaced by futility as expressed by the shirtless white man in the middle, arms thrown up into the air in frustration, carrying our eyes up the length of the tower into the heavens. All around him, anguished workers, particularly the man to his left, who is hunched over in exhaustion and despair. The scene teems with effort, some striving violently in teams while others hammer alone or sit despondent. Our eye finally settles on a cluster of four men arguing over a set of plans, struggling to be understood. I'll include the link to this picture over at thenextjew.com. And so, God, assuming that the monoculture was the root of their scheme, and its success would only encourage more schemes, he baffles their, their language, he baffles their tongues, so humanity scatters across the earth and stops building the city. There's an interesting resonance here between God's self-talk before acting against humanity. Come now, let us go down and let us baffle their language. And the language God uses in Genesis 3 moments before deciding to expel Adam and the woman from the garden. Here, the human has become one, like one of us in knowing good and evil. So now lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life, yada, yada, yada. In both instances, God is seemingly anxious and fearful of what humanity might achieve. And realizing this, he also realizes they must be stopped. As always, you can leave comments and questions and curses and invocations at the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or you can leave a review or comment at iTunes or at thenextjew.com wherever you like. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes so you can get this thing automatically pumped into your ears every week to eight days and come back for the next episode on chapters 12 through 15 in the book of Genesis. Till then, we all come back now. Here.